Well, happy 2024. I can't even believe I'm saying that. Um, Man, the last three to four years have just flown by. It doesn't feel like that long ago we were in the middle of the pandemic. Um, And now we are moving into 2024. And hopefully you had a really great holiday. Um, This weekend, we celebrated the birth of our second grandchild and first granddaughter into the family. And so it is almost 7 p.m. Central Time on Sunday the 7th. And so I didn't even know if I was going to find a way to record this podcast episode on time because I try to release these the first and third Sunday of the month. And and uh, I took pretty much most of December off uh, and I really needed that. I just kind of needed some time of refreshing and, and plus work. I think you would, if you've been in hospice for very long or even in medicine, you feel like holidays, you kind of get punished for them um, because the work doesn't go away. You just have to cram it all into four days for two weeks in a row. Um, so the holidays are a lot of work in medicine and hospice is no exception to that. And so um, so today, I had some other ideas for today, and I'm going to shelf those because in the last couple of days, or maybe even in the last week, I've been rethinking of how I wanted to start off the year uh, for the show. And so I'm really not like a New Year's resolution person at all. I'm really not. <clears throat> I, um, to me, it's like, why do New Year's resolutions? Like, why are we going to wait till the beginning of a new year to lose weight? Or why are we going to wait till the beginning of a new year to make some major change that we should be making? But on the other side of that coin, I, we should still be willing to examine the previous year and we should have goals for the year, Right. Or at least some kind of an idea of things we want to get better at or do better. So I guess I don't believe in New Year's resolutions, but I believe in New Year's resolutions. <laughs> I don't know how to say it right. But I, I really do believe that we that we should take a look at last year and say, what do I want to do different this year? Because I can't do this year exactly the same as last year, right? That's impossible. So how can we be the word that I like to use is intentional. How can we be intentional about this year? And so I have come up for today's show with four different things that I want to challenge you with and uh, get your mind thinking about as we go into this next year. This is James Dibbon, and welcome to the Hospice Nursing Podcast. Well, hello, everyone, and welcome to your show. That's right. This is the only show that provides practical help for hospice nursing success. I'm your host, James Dibbon, with Confessions of a Hospice Nurse.net, 
and thank you for joining me on this very first episode of 2024. admit that felt kind of good <laughs> i have not done a show for a while and while life has been busy and they, i go through times when i'm like do i want to even keep doing the show but then i get feedback from listeners that it's helping them uh, or from folks in the community and i'm like yeah and then i do that intro and i fire up the music and i'm like yeah this i truly do enjoy doing this show uh and and i Sometimes I still have to pinch myself to realize or to to make sure this is not just some kind of a dream uh, because I never, well, I never imagined I would be at this place in my hospice career and, and maybe even in the world of podcasting where my reach is this far. And, and so for all of you who sent me messages uh, emails, left voicemails on the feedback line in 2023. You guys are really the reason that I just keep doing this and keep thinking, okay, what other content can I come up with for the show that changes the lives of hospice nurses? And, and I'll be honest with you, I get lots of people sending me, well, I shouldn't say lots, but but I get my messages one or two a month from people who want to come on the show and a lot of times they are they might be healthcare providers uh, or they might have some kind of service they think all of you need but i am so picky i want the people who come onto this show i want your life to be better i want you to be a better hospice nurse because i had them on and so i i am just immensely grateful for all your feedback for how much this show helps I am working on some guests to come on here over the next couple of months that I think will help help you in your work, uh, and and so I'm looking forward to that, and that will come along, and, and I'm not going to drop any names. Some names you guys are going to know about, and some you won't, uh, and so uh, those things need to all get settled in place before... I make any announcements and and so what will happen is a show will just pop up that has a new guest and and somebody that I believe you can benefit from that will make your practice as a hospice nurse better. And and I almost this is a show, but at the end of every every episode I hope you have tools in your pocket to be a better hospice nurse so that ultimately this isn't just a show. This is a you know, training episodes. This is encouragement for you. This is, you can do this information. And here are the tools to put in your pocket to make you successful. Because I hate the turnover in the world of hospice and the amount of nurses coming and going from uh, this specialty. And if I can do something through this show that brings that percentage down, at all, then I'm going to do it. And so without further ado, uh, you can tell I'm happy to be back to recording because here we are 
eight minutes in and I have not hit any of my points. <laughs> I'm just I'm just enjoying doing this and, and being back on the air, so to speak. And so, like I mentioned, I have just, I've put together over the last two or three days, I just, I like to contemplate what my show is going to be about. And then sometimes my notes, I create a day or two before I actually record the show because they've been floating around in my head or something is happening at work and I'm like, okay, I need to integrate this or there's some, you know, just, just something that I've observed. And so for the show today, I'm going to hit on these four items. These are four things that really it's three things and then one kind of off thing <laughs> that I believe are will will if you integrate these things into your practice have the biggest opportunity to impact your satisfaction in this work and if you've listened to all my shows and been following me from the beginning a couple years ago or you've binged them here all recently you can probably even predict where I may start with this and and it, and some of it is because over the last month at this job, I have some of my belief systems in what we need to do as hospice nurses to be successful have been reinforced in ways that I will not even be able to share on the show because either they are too personal or I just won't be able to communicate them well enough to help you understand why I feel this way. But, um, one of the main items that I want to talk about. And so here's the thing. Am I going to hit on some things I have already hit on in this show? Yes. But I didn't take the lazy way and I didn't grab sound bites. This isn't even the lazy way, but people think it's the lazy way is grab a bunch of sound bites from previous shows and patch those all together and run a string of pre recorded episodes for you to listen to. Uh, you know, the best of the hospice nursing podcast and why I say that's the easy way out, but not really is the amount of work it would take to comb through all those episodes and chop them up and create a best of, or here's, you know, here's what, what the most important things from this year that you need to on all that business. I would have to hire somebody because I do not have the time for all that. So it's the easy way if you pay somebody and it's the hard way if you do it yourself. But my point being is that there are just a few things that I believe you if that if you do these items and really commit to them, you will you will have more successful hospice career. You will be more likely to stay in this work. And I want to hit on those again. And I want to do it as the first episode of the year so that you will be motivated to say, by the end of 2024, I'm going to really be good at this, this, and this. And and it's going to take that intentionality piece, okay? You're going to have to be intentional for that to work. And so it's just going to be, it, 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 it's going to take a lot of work on your part, but it's going to totally pay off. And it is how you are going to be able to, remain in this work and be successful. So I'm going to start out with what I feel is the most important thing. All right. Everything 
from your day needs to be done when you pull into your driveway. Now, I get a lot of virtual eye rolls when I throw that out there. Because, unfortunately, there are many hospice nurses in America who think that is impossible. James, it's impossible. You can't get everything done at the bedside with your patient. You will not be able to get around to all your patients. It's impossible. And to those folks, I say, you're wrong. You're just wrong. There are too many of us who are able to do it. And we don't work for a hospice that only gives us 10 patients and we only see them once a week. And, you know, it's sunshine and rainbows and unicorns all the time. And I, I said at the beginning of this show, it's about intentionality. And if you're someone who has just never been able to do this and you just assume that part of being a hospice nurse is spending your entire evenings charting, then it's time for you to be willing to look at all of this differently. Because I, I, am, I am nothing special, okay? I was just taught to do this in my very first hospice job and didn't know there was any other way and had fantastic hospice nurses in my life who refused to let me become one of those nurses who does not get their work done during the day and spends the evenings. And they're like, you will not make it in this industry. You will not make it in this field. If you do not learn to be efficient with your day and get your charting and everything done before you go home. And even my mentor would sometimes just finish some stuff in the garage before she went into the house. But she did not take yesterday's work into today. She did not. She was a family. You know, she had a big family with multiple kids, and she knew the second she walked in the door from her garage into the home, she was going to be busy with what I have started calling was is her first job, her family. And so you are going to have to be determined that you're going to do this, especially if you've been doing hospice for years and was never taught this. And now you've been taught not to do this. And you have just slipped into this mode of getting your stuff done at night, maybe after the kids go to bed and it's nine o'clock and you get in bed and you're going to chart till 11 from your day. So everything needs to be done as much as possible when you are with the patient at the bedside, and that is doctor's calls. And the less amount of time you've been in hospice, the more intimidating it is to try to call the doctor in front of your patient. And so I understand if you might have to step out and things like that, but make those phone calls at the bedside. This will save you so much later, or when you walk into a nursing home and the nurse grabs you and says, Hey, your all's hospital bed is acting weird. Well, I pull, I pull that phone and stick it up to my face right in front of them and dial the, the equipment company or call the office or drop a email or a text message to the office manager saying, Hey, you know, we need to, you know, we're having a bed problem here for Mrs. Jones over at ABC facility, uh, pharmacy refills, medication refills, 
ordering of supplies. Do it all with your patient at the bedside and then be a field charter. I've I started calling it field charting because people get all worked up when I say chart at the bedside because some some nurses feel like that's kind of impossible to chart at the bedside and you know they have to chart in the driveway and that's if you have to do that okay but I but I don't I don't think that's a solution over the years I've had a, I've visited with enough nurses and I've watched enough nurses to realize that when you go well I chart in the car after the visit in the driveway those nurses end up with super long visits and because they still spend a 40 minutes worth of time in front of the patient. And instead of charting 15 or 20 minutes of that 40 minutes or an hour, they just spend the whole hour with the patient and then have 20 minutes worth of charting in the driveway. And so I've not found it being very good time management to decide to do all your documentation in the driveway. You could probably type your narrative note while sitting in the driveway, but I've never had to do that. And, and one thing I try to tell folks is that especially like I've worked with some nurses who believe in bedside charting now, but spent the first half of their hospice nursing career. Like, you know, they've been in hospice for seven or eight years and they spent the first four not charting at the bedside, trying to convert to being a bedside charter was really hard. And they all tell me the same thing. It got harder before it got easier because it was so foreign to them and it was, but it was difficult and they had to really just push their way through. And probably the hardest part of it is when you get to your narrative note, when you're finishing out your visit is trying to type that narrative while still being able to like look up at your patient and make eye contact with them, but keep typing, like learning how to have your fingers in the right place on the keyboard so you can actually type a narrative note while you look at your patient. And I was talking to a nurse the other day who had worked really hard to get good at that. And she just told me, she just said, it took me a while to get where I felt like I could type while I was looking at the patient, but I eventually got there. And so I just try to remind people that it just is going to take time. Like don't, don't after one week of trying and your visits all run long and you're getting at home at six instead of three forty five all week long and you get frustrated because you go into the weekend and go, this is not going to work. I don't know. James has some magic trick or he's lying or whatever. Don't be like that. Don't give up after the first week because you're getting home at six o'clock all week long and you're used to being home at three forty five and doing a bunch of stuff, and now you feel like you're being cheated. Well, you're not. Like, you're better off getting home at 6 o'clock and being all done than 3.45 and having to chart later, right? And so you just got to stay the course and believe that you're eventually going to get there. So, And I don't like saving the narrative note for later because it's not going to be as good. A lot of nurses are like, I get home and I type out all my narrative notes. Yuck. Don't be that nurse. Don't do that. I had the unfortunate experience over this last week of doing something that has not happened to me in my nine-year hospice experience, okay? And and this is what happens. We're growing, and I had to go out Wednesday morning and do an early admission. 
And then I got to the office and we ended up having a big mess and a bunch of stuff I had to work on and take care of. And so I did not touch that admission at all till the next morning, until Thursday morning. And I have to tell you, that admit compared to other admits that I have done is almost day and night. The quality of my narrative note was not as good. My memory of the patient and um, and and the patient's condition and their needs and their current state. You know, I've talked about the admit note needing to be a history and a physical. So the physical part of what the patient looks like right now was foggy. I'm not. I take okay notes. But since I'm a bedside charter and a get-it-done-right-now person, I don't take a ton of notes because I do most of my work right in front of the patient. So I had to really rely on my notes, and they were eh. And so this was just – and I've never done that before. I have never completed an admission 24 hours after I started it uh, at all. I mean, I've had to finish one up in the morning a few times after having maybe a late admission or something – but I rarely even did that. And and so that delay really was a reminder for me because the material was not as good. My documentation of the patient condition just was not as robust as it usually is. Uh, things just get foggy. And, and here's the worst part that can happen. If you leave that visit open for two or three days, you are even more likely to chart things that did not happen during that visit, but happened maybe a day or two later, or because you just, you, it becomes foggy and you can't keep it straight. And, and it is a horrible idea. It is a horrible thing. If in your documentation, you documented something on Tuesday that actually happened Thursday or Wednesday, and that can look really bad in the record and and that could actually come back to bite you whenever people start to question and go, wait, when did this happen? And you're like, well, I, I put it, it's on Tuesday's visit, but no, we had the conversation the next day at IDT. I actually didn't have that conversation with those people on that day. We actually had it the next, you, you see what I'm saying? Like I'm seeing this kind of thing starting to happen with folks who do not get their charting done the same day. And I'm seeing that because I'm in leadership now. And I'm like, we didn't, you didn't have that conversation with me Tuesday. We had it Thursday. And the nurse is like, well, yeah, but, I, you know, I was finishing up my charting on Thursday and I stuck it in there. And I'm like, okay, but that doesn't look right. You know, that looks funny because we didn't have that conversation. So this is something that can really happen if you delay your charting. Okay. Um, and so I just... It's time. It's time for some of the folks listening to this show who have been listening to me for months and maybe even years who still do not chart at the bedside. It is time for you to turn the corner. It is time for you to say, I am going to do this hard part of hospice so I can get some of my life back. You know, we just helped finish uh, Shelly Henry do her survey and and I've talked to her and she's going to come on the show and talk about the hospice nurse survey. And with all of the different people who've helped her promote it, 
we, you know, blew away last year's numbers. Last year was like 800 and this year is way more than that. And I'm not going to steal her thunder. I will let her give you guys those numbers. But as I read through the survey and I talk to her, I get lots of, I spend all my time charting in the evening. I spend all my time charting in the evening. Some of you, that happens to you and you have no power to control it and can't help it because of maybe the agency you work for or the caseloads they're willing to give you and some of the things like that. But there are many of you who, if you would decide that this is how you are going to be moving forward, that by the end of 2024, you are going to be an everything at the bedside kind of hospice nurse. It is going to change your life. It is going to allow you to stay in this work so much longer, and it will change your family. And one of the memes that I posted out on my Facebook page that I probably ought to post again, and I believe now more than ever, is it is not rude to chart in front of your patient. It's rude to chart in front of your family. Your family comes before this job. End of story. And if you're spending all of your evenings charting and away from your family, it is time to make a change. It is time to be different, and it is time for you to you know, put your proverbial stake in the ground and say, from here moving forward, this is going to be different. This is the biggest tool I can give you. Like, I ought to just play the closing music and say, bam, this show's over. Go and do this one thing. But I got more to say. <laughs> but as you can tell, the passion is just really in me for this right now. This is such an important thing. It is just, I don't know what else to say other than I want this for you. I want you to experience what it is like to be every single day getting home from your job and everything being done. I can't even begin to tell you how important this is to me and how I want to see all of the nurses that are a part of listen to this show and and even the ones that I work with who still don't do it, and I am just beating this drum until the end of time. This is the single most important thing you can do to give you job satisfaction is every single day when you get home, you don't have any documentation to do. You walk in the door and you're just at home with your family. Um, all right, that's enough on that one. Good grief. 20 minutes. I feel like I talked about that. The next thing I want you to work on this year is creating that work-life balance for yourself. And there's just a few tips I want to throw your way to uh, just some things that I watch and see with my nurses. And so it's just going to translate to this episode of the show is that I want all of you to stop texting with your patients and families. Starting tomorrow, starting tomorrow, the ones that you can get off of this horrible habit now I want you to do, and then starting with all your new patients. And here's what I want you to start telling them. Oh, I'm sorry. I'm not allowed to text due to HIPAA. Your texting of patient names and information, even to the patient or their family members, is it is not your texting on your phone is not encrypted. 
it there is all there are ways people hack that stuff and and here's the problem a surveyor isn't going to listen to it a sur- you know or anybody it, it can just happen somebody can pick up your phone if your family member if your spouse your boyfriend your girlfriend your husband your mom or dad pick up your phone because they want to read something or can I see your facebook whatever it is and they open the texting app and they say see that you're talking to Mrs. Smith and they read something, congratulations. You just participated in a HIPAA violation. And and we're we're all guilty of this, especially when our patients and family members texting is kind of a big thing. The most you should I I hesitate to even say this, but the most you should ever text is I'm on my way. But just call them. Like here's the problem with being willing to even text that is that they will just assume they can text you. And so what you do is you tell them, I'm sorry, I can't text due to HIPAA. You have to just call me or I'll call you. Um, And then when they do text you in the evening or on the weekends, because they just love you so much because you're an awesome hospice nurse, you have to ignore it. And that is so hard, especially if they're texting you because they're having a real problem and don't know what to do. And so you will have to train your patients, train your caregivers to understand that there is a whole team behind you. There's weekend nurses for a reason and you completely ignore it. And then when they reach out to you, when you get a hold of them and they go, well, did you get my text message? And you're just going to have to remind them, I'm sorry, we are not allowed to text our patients or family members due to HIPAA. And, and, and you might have to say, and also, I am off after 5 p.m. and on the weekends. And some, some folks, you just have to be honest with them and say, listen, I appreciate you. I care about you. I feel like we've developed a friendship because a lot of times those are the ones who text us the most. And you just have to say, I have to develop work-life balance because I have 15 patients or I have 12 or 13 patients and I could end up working 24-7, 365 if everybody feels like they can just be texting me. So I can't do that. I, I need this for you, okay, dear listener, please. Another thing is, and this is, and I'm struggling here even right now, is avoiding work-related weekend conversations with your team. This goes for leadership and for staff, okay? And this is a really hard one. This is a really hard one. And and my clinical director, Melanie, and I, we we talk about this uh, and really work to hold each other accountable because it's so hard over the weekend to we'll think of something and want to shoot each other a text message or something. And, and I think a lot of that is because we've also developed a friendship. And so we feel this openness to shoot each other messages and, and we've had to have a conversation together saying, okay, let's do better on this. There's nothing that important that it can't wait till Monday. And so what I, what we started doing is I, we will just make reminders on our phones or something for Monday to, or, you know, to say, hey, you know, I'll just, you know how you can talk to Siri and say, hey, got to be careful how you say it or she'll start talking to me right now. But set a reminder Monday at 8 a.m. to such and such. And so I'm really starting to be better at that so that 
I'm not tempted to bug her on the weekends because, hey, she's got a family and I've got a family. And, 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 and so me and her have to be accountable. And I did it this weekend and I saw her, shot her a message about work and I'm like, oh my gosh, don't even reply to me. I shouldn't have even said a word. Just ignore me. And, and I apologize because we have to be careful at that. We have got to have our downtime, especially in hospice when everybody's dying around us. Like it is such heavy work. And, and so I am trying to be even more intentional than ever to leave my team alone after hours, even, even the ones that maybe we've just worked together a lot and we're, we're also friends, but just to realize, Hey, we, we are friends, but in the grand scheme of things, we're probably almost more acquaintances than like buddy, buddy friends. And, and we need to remember that and really try to respect our work-life balance. So I really want you to consider that this year. How can you, you know, we're talking intentionality today. How can you get these boundaries in place, especially if you have a manager who seems like they just want to send out emails all weekend. Like I've had to be careful. So I am in management. And so sometimes on the weekends or late Sunday, I need to clean, go through some emails and clean them up. Well, I try to, I try to make sure that I am not sending emails on the weekend even for that way, especially directed at somebody within the office, because I don't want them to feel like they need to reply to me. So a lot of these email apps that we use, you can schedule an email to go out. And so if you are in leadership or you think of something over the weekend that you really feel like you need to deal with, that's what happens when you're in leadership. Sometimes you're buttoning up a few things or handling some stuff over the weekend. You just could not get done during the week. It's a little bit different beast. Uh, and the expectations are different, especially as an administrator with a lot of organizations. Don't be afraid to use these schedule, you know, to schedule your emails to go out more like 8 a.m. on Monday and things like that. Um, okay, so that's number two. So number one is have everything done before you get home each day. Number two is create work-life balance for yourself. And then number three is learn the difference between visit nursing and and case management. Now, this might hit you a little strange, okay? And this actually, there's a lot of points in here. I hope this don't go on forever. <laughs> um, but I, I see this a lot. I see case managers acting like visit nurses and visit nurses acting like case managers. And, and I'll tease this out just a little bit for you, Okay. Uh, but there's a difference between those two roles. And it is important that we be intentional when when we're and and it can even really be hard when you are a case manager who's picking up some on call and not thinking like a case manager for the weekend and think like a visit nurse. Personally, I think uh I think case managers struggle with with behaving like visit nurses more often than visit nurses struggling to act like case managers. So this is going to have a lot more case management in it, but I'll still drop some truth bombs on the on-call team. Uh, but 
it's important as a case manager to realize you're not just driving around seeing patients all day. That that this is about ownership of your uh, of your caseload, and I believe in the one uh, episode where I did foundations, I talked about that. I talked about the ownership of this job and the importance of of feeling you know owning your your caseload, and it was probably you know I haven't podcasted for a month, but I'm guessing right now. Uh, let me see case management foundation. So that was back November 5th, but that was only, you know, three or four episodes ago. So if you're binging right now, you're like, yeah, I already heard that part there, bro, (laughs) about owning your, uh, your, you know, owning your caseload, but, but that's real important. And as a case manager, I really want to stick some things in your ear for you to really be considering, considering this. Okay. But case managers should be thinking a little bit more big picture. All right. And so let me give you some ideas of what I mean by that. Stay with us. We'll be right back. I have had some members at the hospice nursing community request some kind of a support group to help fight burnout. And so I have started two burnout support groups at the hospice nursing community.com uh, to, to help everybody. And so these support groups meet twice a month on the second Thursday and the second Sunday of the month. And so we're going to be doing that. And I wanted to make sure you understood or knew that these will be faith friendly support groups. And it doesn't mean they'll be preaching or anything strange like that, but I might use devotionals. I might pull something out of the Bible, maybe out of Psalms or something, but just there might be sections of the, uh, of the group that deal with matters of faith. And, and I hope that is of interest to you. Uh, it can be found in the community events, uh, section of the community. So if you would consider joining, I think it would help you. It's going to help me. I need it, I think, as much as anybody does. So join a burnout support group at thehospicenursingcommunity.com. Recertifications. You should be keeping track of all of your patients and their research dates coming up. If you don't have a clue who is recertifying until a week before it happens, or you only know because the agenda that your office manager or whoever puts out for IDT says in two weeks, this is the patient you need to recertify. If that's the only time you know when a patient is going to get recertified, that's bad on your part. I used to keep track on a calendar of when everybody's recertification dates were coming to an end and where the IDT is for that patient because I wanted to know several weeks in advance to make sure I was really keeping an eye on the record, keeping an eye on the patient, making sure I was getting my weights, really making sure that I was gathering everything in preparation for the IDT. I was even making sure that the nurse practitioner was seeing my patient, the ones who had been on service for a long time, because that kind of stuff gets missed every now and then. And as a case manager, you should know, you should be like, hey, Mrs. Jones, have you seen, you know, Jennifer, our nurse practitioner yet? She should be reaching out to you soon. And then if you find out, 
you're making a visit and IDT is next week. And hey, did Jennifer make it by here and see you? No, we haven't seen her yet. Believe it or not, this happened at my last job last year. And I reached out to the NP and she was like, oh my gosh, I totally forgot. I was going to forget. Thank you so much for messaging me. That is ownership. Okay. That is knowing when your patient is going to get recertified and keeping an eye out for that nurse practitioner visit. Very important. And I know that that patient was going to get missed. I'm pretty sure it was at my last job. And I was like, because uh, I called her and she was like, oh, uh, yeah, I'm getting by there. And I was like, mm, I don't think you were. <laughs> so and listen, I'm not being judgy of nurse practitioners like we're all busy. It's easy to forget stuff and things like that. And we're all in this together. But that ownership piece is knowing when your recertif recertifications come up. And then case manager manages the visit schedule and does not let the EMR make the decisions. So there, there's a couple of things to consider here is there's going to be an ebb and flow with your caseload. Uh, as patients come in your service and pass away or come out of service, your your coverage area is going to morph and change, and it may force you to take a look at where you're driving on what day of the week. And it may force you to take a patient who loves their Tuesday, Friday, and get with them and say, listen, it's not making sense anymore for me to see you on Tuesday, Friday because of the overlapping in my driving. I'm going to have to make you a Monday, Thursday and help them understand that. Uh, but a lot of nurses, what they do is whatever it says on their schedule, they just drive over and go do it. And they don't really stop and take that ownership of their schedule and go, okay, this is silly. We're not doing this. Uh, this isn't going to work out. And just those call, those conversations can be kind of hard, but it's just a part of managing your caseload and saying, okay, I am not going to be able to see this patient over here on Monday, Thursday anymore because I'm just not driving there the same now. And I'm going to have to move them, you know, or even to Wednesday, Friday or whatever the case may be. And so don't don't let the EMR decide how you're going to manage your day or your week or your month. You are the case manager and sometimes you just have to move folks around. Um and, and I just remind folks, listen, nobody is going to care for you, okay? When you're a case manager, you got to do it. If you don't address the problem, nobody else will. Don't leave it for the weekends if you can help it. Sometimes we forget stuff and have to ask our weekend folks, hey, listen, you're already going to be seeing so-and-so this weekend, and I forgot to pass this on or tell them this or whatever. So, I mean, that's going to happen some, but... Just remember, you're the case manager, and if you don't do it, probably nobody else is going to do it. And so you just got to remind that about yourself, okay? That's just one of the differences. Uh, sometimes when you're a visit nurse, you can go in and just solve the immediate problem and leave stuff for the case manager and other people to clean up. And, and we're going to talk about that in a minute because I'm going to address the, the visit nurses here in a moment, but... As the case manager, it's your job to follow up with everything. And I've talked about that some. If you have a patient that on call starts an antibiotic over the weekend, you need to at least touch base with them Monday and make sure they got their antibiotic and it's actually started. 
because weekends can be crazy and pharmacies miss stuff and visit nurses. I'll defend you right now. Sometimes your weekends are crazy and the doctor wants to start an antibiotic, but you had to run out on that. You know, it took the doctor an hour and a half to call you back and maybe you forgot to order the dumb thing. I mean, that can happen. Okay. It, It can happen with all of us. And I'm just saying the case manager has to take ownership and not do a lot of blame and saying, hey, it's my caseload, it's my job to follow up. You know, you can communicate with your clinical director if weekends is making it hard all the time. But let's not take a dump on our weekend people who we desperately need. We want them to stick around. <laughs> um, a good case manager knows when to get the chaplain and social worker involved. This is a really easy one to forget because we nurses, we get a lot of psychosocial training in nursing school. And so we can get pretty good at handling things that actually are not even, uh, you know, not even our, our responsibility. And so don't be afraid to get your social worker involved and your chaplain whenever, uh, whenever something is getting difficult. I'm going to give you some ideas here, but don't be afraid to get a copy of the social worker and chaplain job descriptions from your organization. This might sound kind of strange, especially to reach out to HR. Uh, you know, do it in a way that they don't think you're mad at the chaplain or social worker. You know, like, okay, why is he asking for the job description? But this is a great, this would be a really good thing for you to review for you and your agency, especially if you're new to hospice. If you're brand new to hospice, I really encourage you to do this right away. Hunt down those job descriptions for them and just say, hey, I just want a better understanding of at what point should I reach out to my chaplain or social social worker to get help. Um, and and just, just because they refuse the chaplain and social worker when they first came into service, that doesn't mean that now it might be time to bring them in and get them involved. Um, and so a couple of things to think about when you're starting to have a lot of family conflict, that is a good time to bring in the social worker or when the patient is beginning to verbalize some fear of dying. So one of the biggest, re- well, I'll, I'm going to tackle these two things separately. First off, don't forget that most social workers in the world of hospice are master's level, and some of them are licensed, you know, like the LMS licensed, um, LMSW, and there's some other ones. Most of them have been trained how to do therapy. Now, they may not have their therapy license because of all the stuff they have to go through to actually get official therapy license, but many of them have been trained in therapy. And so when you really have some conflict going on in the family, you need to be sure to reach out to your social worker and say, hey, we're having a hard time over here. There's a lot of conflict and disagreement. Uh, It's not always your job to try to fix and solve that. And that's why you have other teams. Uh, Or when you have a patient who verbalizes a fear of dying, that might be a time to get the chaplain involved. And, And part of your job is to help them understand that a chaplain is not a religion freak. You know, that they're that they're not going to show up and try to get everybody saved like their job is to be non-denominational and meet patients where they are, help to be a resource for those patients. I've I've had chaplains of every faith, religion, view, 
just all of that stuff. And for the most part, they're all really good at just understanding where the patient is coming from and helping them with their spiritual resources. But don't forget that chaplains are masters and PhD level professionals in, in the, where I am in the state of Missouri. And I don't, maybe this is everywhere. I don't know if this is a Medicare thing or just the state of Missouri, but you have to have your masters in divinity to be a chaplain hospice chaplain in the state of Missouri. I mean, that is crazy. A master's in divinity. Like I have an associate's degree in nursing and I'm in charge of some of these folks. And I'm like, you should be in charge of me because I don't feel qualified. Uh, but I think like, especially some of our patients decline the chaplain because they have their own priest or pastor or whatever. And what I have discovered for those patients is that their priest and pastor do not visit them very often. And it's not because that priest or pastor is a bad person or anything like that, but they have their church or synagogue or mosque or whatever it is they're in charge of that they're trying to take care of, you know, they're trying to shepherd the flock that's in the building and they're not always able to leave the building. And so I've had patients who refused our chaplain because they had their own priest or pastor. And as they were starting to decline, I've said, Hey, I know you've declined our chaplain, but I actually think it would be time for you to let him or her visit you and help you work through some of your some of your faith struggles that you've been sharing with me. And a lot of times they'll go, yeah, my pastor just has not been able to be here. That would be good. And a lot of times I'll say, Hey, let me just have them reach out and come and pay you a visit. And, and that has gone well. And so, um, I, I just, I want you to really, as a case manager, be sure to be reaching out to, you know, your chaplains and social workers and, and you visit nurses as well. You're going to see stuff on the weekends that the rest of us just do not see during the week because maybe those family members only visit on the weekend and you catch something and you're like, oh, that's kind of a big deal. We need to get, you know, I need to get, um, you know, I need to let nurse Nancy know that she might want to get the social worker and chaplain involved. And so let's hit a few things for visit nurses right now. You guys have got to be laser focused in your visits and don't try to fix problems you were not requested to fix. And, you know, I had that episode uh, with Tanya. Episode six is still a really big downloaded episode where we talked. I think it was six. Anyway, we talked about, uh, you know, the the uh, being on call. Gosh, I got them all here. I wonder if I. I don't remember which one the record I'm looking through my list here to make sure it was an episode six um, on call episode 10 episode 10 with Tanya. It's really time for me to have another on call nurse on here. I think um, to talk about on call and things like that. But, but um, you know, don't like you need your, when you walk in the door, make sure you know what it, you got called there for and you don't need to be trying to fix all kinds of other problems while you're there. Go in, fix the problem you got called for. Obviously, you need to address anything that's, you know, immediate needs that weren't on the list. But don't get caught up in the weeds here and trying to fix problems you were not asked to fix and wasn't even the reason for you 
the call. And so I I see a lot of nurses get caught up in this and have an hour and two hour visits because the pillbox was messed up or this family member didn't understand or that one didn't or whatever. Um, And and I just want to caution you to not get caught up in all that stuff because you've got to solve the problem and free yourself up for other patients a lot of the time. Um, And then I added this late this afternoon because I'm just, I'm getting reports of this kind of thing from members in my community. And, and I just want to drop this on you for a minute, but don't document slash email judge other nurses. I don't know why we do this in nursing, but I feel like we love it. I remember years ago when I was still an LP and working in a nursing home, Young and dumb, okay? Now I'm just old and dumb. But this is when I was young and dumb. And I was it was my first job at a nursing home and having a whole hall of 35 patients. And, and I was working hard. And no matter what I did, the evening nurse would come in and scrutinize all my work and go behind my back and check everything. And if I missed anything, and, and this is me after just two years of being a nurse, right? Like just, I'm still wet behind the ears. I probably have no clue about time management and I just could never get everything done. And sometimes stuff would fall, but she would run around behind me. I can't remember her name because good grief, this was forever ago and, and find all the stuff that I did wrong and put it all in an email and send it to my boss just week after week after week. I did not last. I didn't last there long enough for it to even be on my resume. But I don't know why nurses do this sometimes to each other is they'll find a mistake some other nurse made and they'll send this big email out to everybody saying, hey, this happened to patient so and so and I don't understand why X, Y and Z got ignored. And then that that nurse feels called out or or we document one nurse will document that they noticed something and the other nurse didn't and just weird stuff like that. And I don't know why. That happens. Or or I've even, a few years ago, I had a nurse who was fighting with a facility nurse and actually documented that in the note, that the facility nurse was rude to her. And so somebody said this to me. The boss at the time said, let's, you know, let's chart what Medicare is paying us to be there for, right? Medicare isn't paying us for me to get in there and go, you know, discussed patient condition with nurse Nancy, who was rude to me about it. I mean, people actually type that stuff. (laughs) So let's not forget what Medicare is actually paying us to do. And then if you do see something unusual, let's just shoot an email to the case manager and move on. And just, hey, I happened to notice this. Just thought I would give you a heads up on it. You know, and who knows, it may be something the case manager totally knew about and the clinical director knew about. And and they might reply and say, oh, yeah, we forgot to tell you it's like this because of such and such. Um, So it's possible you find something that um, that's just normal for the situation. And you you could have spent a whole bunch of time or created a bunch of drama trying to fix something that is just going to frustrate you. And it just is the way it is because the folks during the week already knew. And so I'm just telling you that not because I don't want you to be observant and be aware, but I also don't want you spinning your wheels 
because you guys, you weekend folks have a busy, busy, hard job. And I don't want to see you having more on your plate than you ought to have. Okay. So those are my main three things. The everything done when you pull into your driveway, having work-life balance, and then for you case managers acting like a case manager and you visit nurses acting like visit nurses, right? And then the fourth and final point I have on here is just this. Don't give up. Will you stay in this work with me, please? Because we need you. And as I like to say towards the end of my little shows, that hospice nursing, it's not going to get easier. Like, we can't sit around and wait for it to get easier. This is death and dying. It doesn't get easier. We just get better at it. And you get better at it through intentionality, not through experience. Now, can you get better at hospice nursing through experience alone? Yes. But you will get better at it quicker through intentionality, okay, by by deciding certain things that you are going to get good at no matter how hard it is. And also giving yourself some grace and realizing you're going to mess up because this is such unique work. It is so backwards And it is just so different than any other area of nursing that you need to give yourself some grace in this job and realize that you are imperfect, your patients are imperfect, your organization is imperfect. We are all imperfect. And we can't beat ourselves up when something doesn't go right. And we all want to beat ourselves up because we have such high expectations of ourselves and especially when we are dealing with patients who are in the last weeks to months of life and we recognize that that their caregivers are going to remember anything and everything we do for probably the rest of their life. They're going to remember our names. And with that comes a lot of weight. And part of what can make this job super, super hard. So, My big message to you for this year is stay the course that you can do this, that we can do this as a community of nurses. We can find a way to make ourselves successful in this work. And I am here to help that happen. And I am doing my best to bring on guests and dig up content here that will help you be successful. And I am working diligently over at thehospicenursingcommunity.com to build more resources for you. And so that's why a month or so ago, I completely dropped all of the pricing down to $4.99 a month, $4.99 a month, okay? Because because I want to help you, but I've got to be able to cover the cost and expenses of all this stuff. Hey, I get paid nothing to do this podcast. Podcast, somebody asked me the other day, how much money do you make from your podcast? And I said, zero dollars. Apple doesn't pay me to do a podcast unless you hear an advertisement on this show or any show. Nobody's getting paid. Nobody gets paid for doing this. And so I'm not here to get rich. I'm just covering some expenses. But 
I just finished the case management series, uh, coaching series, and I have seven videos. They are foundations, which I did a podcast episode. They are medications is part two. Part three is managing your visit frequencies and how to create a visit schedule. Part four is your IDT and IDG meetings and those documentation. Number five is bedside charting. Number six is time management. Number seven is care plan meetings. And I'm going to add part eight, which is documentation tips and tricks. So, hey, there's a lot going over there. So you got to check it out, man. I can't drop the price any lower. There wouldn't even be a point to charging anything. And I got to cover the expenses somehow. Whew. Would you call and leave me a voicemail if this show helps you at 816-834-9191? Email me at james at confessionsofahospicenurse.net. And as I said earlier, hospice doesn't get easier. You just get better at it. And let's get better at it together. This has been episode 46 of the Hospice Nursing Podcast for January 7th, 2024.